Well, that was a wonderful introduction. Thank you, Ray. Um, I'm going to talk more specifically about science as knowledge. And of course, the word science means knowledge um, from the Latin scio, I know. So it's, um, I'm going to be talking particularly about the situation science is in today as a system of knowledge. I recently wrote a book called The Science Delusion. And what the science delusion is, is the belief that science already understands the nature of reality in principle, leaving only the details to be filled in. Um, this is a very pervasive belief in the modern world. Uh, there are a lot of people who have made it into a kind of religion, um, uh, sometimes called scientism. Um, and I think there's a terrible conflict in the heart of science at the moment between science... Uh, as a belief system or a worldview, and science as a method of inquiry. As Ray pointed out, there's at any given time in science a set of reigning paradigms or assumptions. Um, and this concept of scientific paradigms and revolutions is now 50 years old. Thomas S. Kuhn's famous book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, was published in 1962. It's the 50th anniversary. And his books brought about a kind of revolution in the way we see science. It's not just an abstract way of finding, testing hypotheses. The idealizations of Karl Popper have to be set in the context of the social system, which is uh, that science is a social system, a collective system of inquiry with group beliefs and, and peer group uh, pressures. Well, within science, this conflict between the dogmatic side and the open side is particularly bad at the moment, I think. And what I'm going to do now is spell out what I take to be the ten dogmas of modern science. What I do in my book, The Science Delusion, is turn each of these dogmas into a question, and I look at it scientifically to see how well they stack up if you look at them in the light of evidence and in the light of advances in science itself. This so-called scientific worldview is effectively the materialist philosophy of nature which came to dominate science in the late 19th century. Um, and what's happened is that science has in different areas outgrown it, long since outgrown it, but it remains nevertheless the kind of belief system, the default belief system of scientifically educated people. Not because uh, they've thought about these beliefs uh, uh, critically, but because they haven't. It's something that's simply absorbed. Okay, well, what they are is, first and foremost, nature is mechanical. The universe is like a machine. Animals are like machines. Plants are machines. We're machines, lumbering robots, in Richard Dawkins' vivid phrase. Our brains are like computers, uh, genetically programmed. So that takes the machine metaphor and applies it to the whole, nature, uh, the whole of nature. And this, this was the 17th century scientific revolution that laid the foundations for everything that followed in science. Second, matter is unconscious. The whole universe is made up of unconscious matter. When you look out into the sky, the stars, the galaxies, the vastness of the universe is unconscious. But somehow, for unexplained reasons, matters become conscious inside human brains. Um, and maybe the brains of some other animals, but the rest of nature is utterly unconscious. Third, the laws of nature are fixed. They're the same today as they were at the moment of the Big Bang, and they'll stay the same forever. And so are the constants. Fourth, 
the total amount of matter and energy is always the same. Uh, the, uh, uh, it was the same at the moment of the Big Bang. Uh, it'll remain the same forever. As my friend Terence McKenna used to say, modern science is based on the principle, give us one free miracle and we'll explain the rest. And the one free miracle is the appearance of all the matter and energy in the universe and all the laws that govern it from nothing in a single instant. Um, fifth, the uh, nature is purposeless. There are no purposes in nature. Plants and animals don't really have purposes. They may appear to, but they're just a product of chance forces and natural selection. And the entire evolutionary process has no purpose or direction. Um, now, is that something that's been proved? No, it's just assumed. It's because nature's a machine, and machines have no purposes of their own. Sixth, biological inheritance is material. Everything you inherit biologically is chemical in the form of DNA or epigenetic modifications of the DNA or cytoplasmic inheritance, but it's essentially material. Uh, seventh, uh, Memories are stored as material traces in the brain. Everything you remember is somewhere inside your head. Nobody knows quite how or where, but it's inside your head because that's the belief. Um, number eight, the mind is inside the brain. Your entire mental activity is nothing but the activity of your brain, and it's inside your head. Dogma nine, which follows from dogma eight, psychic phenomena are illusory. People may imagine they have telepathic experiences, uh, but they don't really, because telepathy is impossible, because if the mind's inside the brain, thoughts and intentions can have no possible effect at a distance. And dogma 10, mechanistic medicine is the only kind that really works. Complementary and alternative therapies may appear to work, but that's only because people would have got better anyway, or it's just the placebo effect. So these are the 10 basic dogmas of science. This is the default worldview of almost all educated people. And we've now exported this system of belief to the whole world. Educated people in China and India and everywhere else have been brought up to believe this. And by believing this set of beliefs, you prove you're educated. You prove you're superior to other people who don't have these beliefs. Um, so this is the framework that dominates scientific inquiry. And deviation from it is heresy, and heresy harms careers. So we've got a, 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 a belief system uh, which is the dominant paradigm. Within that, people can work critically, explore hypotheses, find new evidence, change their views. But that framework itself is not negotiable, normally. I'm trying to argue that it should be, and that by questioning these beliefs, in every case, Entirely new perspectives open up, new kinds of science. Science can be liberated, uh, and I think it would lead to a renaissance of science. Let me take a couple of examples. I don't have time for more, but um, take the idea that the total amount of matter and energy is always the same. This is the dogma that I myself believed until most recently. I've questioned all the others, but this was the last one I questioned because I thought it was the most certain. And I quite liked it. Uh, the idea that it might be true, because I didn't want to... Uh, I thought if I said all ten dogmas are wrong, it might sound biased. Uh, so uh, this was the one I, I, I thought stood the best chance of being true. Well, <coughs> on examination, it turns out not to be at all convincing. 
First of all, the reasons for it are theological, not scientific. When this was embedded into mechanistic science in the 17th century, uh, the belief was put there not because people had done incredibly accurate measurements with the most accurate balances and measuring apparatus available. No. It was put there because the assumption was that there was a god of the world machine who created the machine universe, and that because God created it, uh, all the atoms he created as divine creations uh, couldn't possibly uh, decay because they were God-given. And anyway, atoms, by definition, can't be split up or be destroyed or created. Therefore, the total amount of matter is always the same. And because God imparted a motion, uh, motion to the universe in the first place, and because that was God-given, the total amount of motion or force was always the same. A theological reason that in the 17th century seemed pretty convincing. These were then codified in the 19th century in the principle of conservation of energy and in the first law of thermodynamics, which is the law of conservation of energy. Um, and they became embedded in the scientific uh, endeavor as certain truths. They're certainly useful accountancy principles, and that's why physicists can have equations. The amount before and after a process equals, uh, one side equals the other side. But are they ultimate truths of nature? Well, physicists themselves are less constrained by these beliefs than the rest of us. In the 1980s, it turned out that stars within galaxies were moving too fast around the galactic center to be explained in terms of the gravity of the galaxy if you add up all the stars and gas clouds and matter and make a generous allowance for planets and black holes. Um, there's not enough gravity to explain the way the stars move. And moreover, galaxies are attracting each other far more than they should do uh, if you just take the normal amount of gravity they ought to have. So either the theory's wrong or there's a lot more matter in galaxies than anyone had ever thought. Well, it's easier to say there's more matter than that the theory is wrong. So uh, that was the answer. There must be a lot of extra matter that no one had ever known about before, and it's invisible and undetectable by any normal means. It's called dark matter because its nature is literally obscure. Um, and how much is there? Well, exactly the amount you need to make the equations work. <laughs> If you find a peculiar bulge in a galaxy, then you can add in extra dark matter to explain it. The system works perfectly. The equations give you the right answer every time. Um, and if the observations change, then you just titrate the amount of dark matter uh, so that it's exactly right. There's now thought to be about five times more dark matter than regular matter in the universe. Having added in all this extra gravity to the universe, then there was a problem with the universal expansion. As the universe grows uh, from the Big Bang, uh, if you add in all the extra matter, there should be more gravitation pulling it back in. So in the late 1990s, physicists were convinced the universe would slow down as it expanded. It would finally stop expanding and then begin to contract under the influence of all this matter until it ended in the reverse of the Big Bang, known in the trade as the Big Crunch. Um, <laughs> So the, um, this, again, seemed perfectly plausible until observations in the late 1990s showed the universe was not slowing down. In fact, it was speeding up in its expansion. This was a completely unexpected result. How do you explain that? Well, there must be another form of energy pushing it apart. Dark energy, how much is there? Just the right amount to push it apart. So... <coughs> 
dark matter and dark energy, the amounts vary from year to year, depending on the fiat of mathematicians and physicists. But currently, they account for 96% of reality. The, the, the 4% of regular matter and energy, the matter and energy you learned about at school, um, is only a tiny minority of what's there, and no one knows what the rest is, what its properties are, what it does. Is it conserved? Is the, the total amount always the same? Well, actually, no. The total amount of dark energy is increasing. As the universe expands, the amount of dark energy increases. The universe is now a perpetual motion machine. So uh, what does that where does that leave the whole standard dogma? Well, the standard dogma remains in place. And... If people come up and they, with devices that claim to produce more energy than you put in, and they usually say they're tapping the quantum vacuum field, another source of energy that physics has introduced, um, the matter we know about are like waves on the surface of an ocean of energy, um, and that ocean of energy is vast, a teaspoonful would power Britain for years uh, of the quantum vacuum field. Some people say they've got devices that can tap that, and they give out more energy than you put in. They're called above-unity devices. Now, when these inventors come up with these, what do people do? Do they say, that's brilliant, it's a fantastic breakthrough? They say, no, these people are complete cranks, they're perpetual motion machine cranks, and they're driven into the outer darkness of fringe science. Look on the internet under above-unity devices or free energy machines, you'll find thousands of them. Yet, none of them can be taken seriously or admitted within the purview of rational scientific inquiry because they defy an ancient taboo, the taboo on perpetual motion machines which arises from the law of conservation of matter and energy. Do they really work? I don't know. Uh, I've seen some of them myself, and they seem to work. Some have been tested in rigorous tests. They seem to give out more energy than you put in. But when these companies approach large organizations with their scheme, they often find people who are receptive to start with, but then they ring up their physics advisor, who will be an eminent professor of physics at a university, and in five minutes he'll say, oh, don't touch them with a barge pole. They're obvious cranks. This is completely impossible. It's a perpetual motion machine. What I would do if I had a lot of money is set up a million-pound prize for the best above-unity device, have people who would test them fairly and see whether any of them really work, and if they do, give them the prize. If several work, give the prize to the one that works best. If none of them work, then don't give the prize, and those who think they won't work the conventional view, people who have that view would then have the pleasure of saying, I told you so. But at last, there'd be some evidence for this view. I would also, if I were an entrepreneur, open a book on this process and allow those who say it won't work to put their money where their mouth is and bet on no one winning the prize. And those who think someone might win it could bet on that. It would be popular, it would be interesting, the finals could be on television. It would <laughs> lead to public engagement with science, it would be fun, and it could lead to discoveries that would transform our economy. But none of that's going to happen as long as this taboo remains in place. And the, 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 the emotion with which scientists defend these taboos is just amazing. I mean, I've been the victim of this quite often, and it's astonishing how emotional get, people get in defending these taboos. Um, let me take one other of these dogmas. The mind is inside the brain. This is just standard default position of all educated people. Mental activity is brain activity. 
No one quite knows how consciousness works because matter's unconscious, and this is called the hard problem in philosophy of mind. Some people say the mind doesn't really exist at all. That's called eliminative materialism. Some say it's an epiphenomenon. It's a kind of shadow of brain activity that does nothing. Others say that it's an illusion. Of course, that doesn't explain consciousness because illusion is a mode of consciousness. It presupposes it. And philosophy of mind just goes round and round in circles, generation after generation, trying to explain away consciousness because it doesn't fit in. But all of them agree it's in the brain. But is that how we actually experience things? Consider vision. How does vision work? You're seeing me now and what's going on. Light's reflected from me, goes through the electromagnetic field, enters your eyes, inverted images on the retinas, uh, um, impulses up the optic nerve, uh, changes in the brain, which can be revealed by brain scanning. Does that explain vision? Well, no, it, it, it describes what happens in the brain. The first thing about the vision is you're conscious of what you're seeing. That has no explanation at all. That's the hard problem. But second is the question of where is this happening? You're actually experiencing three-dimensional uh, images of the world in color. Where are they? The official view is they're inside your head. All your experience is inside your head. Um, there's a little Rupert somewhere inside your brain, and the whole of the rest of this room uh, is inside your head. If you look at the sky, the sky you're seeing is inside your head. A recent paper in one of the leading journals was called, Is Your Skull Beyond the Sky? Um, it was written by a materialist who said, yes, of course it is. All your experience is in your brain. When you see the sky, that's, it's your skull's beyond the sky. Everything you're experiencing is in your head. Well, I'm going to suggest a hypothesis that's very different, and it's so simple it's hard to understand. And that is <laughs> that your image of me is located not inside your head, but right here. It's exactly where it seems to be. It's in your mind, but it's not in your brain. Your entire perceptual world is projected out beyond your brain into the world around you. So vision is a two-way process. Light comes in, changes happen in the brain, and then the images are projected out. I'm suggesting that all your experience is projected out beyond you. It's in your mind, but not in your brain. It's projected through fields, fields of the mind, uh, which are invisible. Um, but we're used to fields being inside and beyond things. A magnetic field's in a magnet and extends beyond it. The gravitational field of the Earth is in the Earth and extends beyond it, holding the moon in its orbit. The field of your mobile telephone is inside the mobile telephone and extends invisibly beyond it. And I suggest the field of your mind extends invisibly beyond it through every act of perception. Now, if I'm not just playing with words or putting forward a philosophical view, which is, after all, not a new one, it's an old one. It's what Plato thought, it's what Euclid thought, it's what traditional philosophers all over the world have thought, it's what primitive people think, and it's what children under the age of 10 believe. Um, it's not a new theory at all, the two-way theory of vision, but it's taboo from the point of view of modern science. Educated people are not meant to believe it. But if it's a scientific theory, it should be testable. Is it testable? If I look at something and my mind reaches out to touch what I'm looking at through mental fields, perceptual fields, can I affect what I'm looking at? Well, at first you realize this is a question you shouldn't ask, and it, you should, if, if it is asked, immediately deny it. Of course you can't. 
But think of it in another way. If I look at you from behind and you don't know I'm there and I'm looking through a window so you can't hear me or anything, could you feel my gaze? Now, as soon as you ask that, you realize this is a common experience. The feeling of being looked at from behind is very, very common. Surveys show that about 90% of the population have had this. You turn around, someone's staring at you, or you stare at someone and you can make them turn around. There is a slight sex difference. More women than men have experienced being stared at, and more men than women <laughs> have experienced staring at others and making them turn around. Um, <coughs> But the majority of both sexes know uh, this from personal experience. And I then interviewed professionals. When, when I talked to my scientific colleagues, they said, oh, of course it doesn't happen. It's an illusion. It's just coincidence. You turn around all the time. You only remember it when someone's looking at you. I said, have you got any studies on this, any evidence? There was none. A complete, total, credulous belief that it doesn't exist among scientists in defiance of all this vast amount of evidence and experience. So I thought I'd try and find out, does it really happen? I started by asking experts, people who look at others for a living. Most of us are mere amateurs. But I, invest, I, I interviewed surveillance personnel, uh, the police at training college at Hendon, the drug squad at Heathrow, the store detectives at Harrods, and private detective training institutes. Um, all of them were convinced this is real. If you're being trained as a private detective, and I imagine very few of you have been, but um, um, if, you, if you're trained as a private detective in how to follow people, the first thing you learn is you don't stare at their back because they're likely to turn around, catch your eye, and blow your cover. You have to look at them a bit or else you lose them, but you look at their feet. Um, so um, it's well known in the martial arts, they have training procedures to get, become more sensitive to being looked at from behind. I developed experiments to test this, experiments so simple a child can do them. And in fact, thousands of children already have done them. They've been done in schools in Britain, Germany, and in the United States, as well as in universities. Um, the subject is blindfolded. Uh, somebody sitting behind them in the rigorous test behind a mirror, or a one-way mirror, or a window, either looks or doesn't look at the back of their neck. The trial is indicated by a beep or a click. They have to guess if they're being looked at or not. And they're right or they're wrong. By chance, they'd be right 50% of the time. In fact, in the looking trials, they're right about 60% of the time. There have now been hundreds of thousands of these trials. They've been done all over the world. It's been running in the Science Museum in Amsterdam for the last 15 years. More than 20,000 people have taken part. The evidence is overwhelming that this really exists. The sense of being stared at is real. Animals have it too. Hunters and wildlife photographers have often found it. People have found they can be looked at by animals. And I think in predator-prey relations, uh, it makes perfect sense. If a, a, a prey animal can tell when a hidden predator is looking at it, it would escape better than one that can't. So I don't think this is something specially human. I think it's a basic animal ability. I think all animals project out their visual world uh, when they see. So uh, I think the mind's much more extensive uh, than the brain uh, in our acts of perception. Our intentions and attention reach out beyond the brain. And the Latin words attention and intention tell us this. Attention is ad tendere, to stretch towards. Intention is to stretch into. I think similar principles underlie telepathy. I've done a lot of work on telepathy and dogs, and dogs that know when their owners are coming home. I wrote a book called dogs that know when their owners are coming home. <laughs> uh, um, 
many dogs do this. Uh, we filmed them. We had people come at random times in taxis or unfamiliar vehicles. Uh, it ruled out all the standard clues. And dogs really seem to do this over and over again. Highly significant uh, results, all published in peer-reviewed journals, like the staring research. The commonest kind of telepathy in the modern world occurs with telephone calls. You think of someone, uh, then they ring, and you say, that's funny, I was just thinking about you. Or when the phone rings, you know who it is before you look at the caller ID or pick it up. This has gone on ever since the beginning of the invention of the telephone. About 80% of people have had this experience, including 80% of scientists. Um, so, and probably 80% of doctors too. Um, what's going on? Everyone in this room has been trained to be smart, clever, scientific, and so you all know the answer. Well, you think about people all the time, and occasionally one of them rings and you imagine it's telepathy, but you just forget the millions of times you're wrong. That's the standard skeptical armchair argument. Every educated person has been equipped with it, so that when someone tells a story like this, they can be put down and put in their place by the smart, educated, scientific person. But where's the evidence for that hypothesis? When I looked into this in the first place, none whatsoever, there'd been no studies at all. In my experiments, uh, what happens is if you're the subject, you sit at home, landline phone, you're being filmed, um, we, you give the names of four close friends or family members, we pick one of them at random, ask them to ring you, they ring you, the phone goes, you, you know it's one of these four people, you can't know by any normal means who it is. Before you pick it up, you guess, you say the guess to the camera. I think it's John. You pick it up. Hello, John. You're right or you're wrong. Um, the chance of being right by chance is 25%. In these trials, more than 600 of these film trials, the hit rate is 45%. The p-value is 1 times 10 to the minus 12. Telephone telepathy is more probable than the existence of the Higgs boson. Um, <laughs> um, this has been published, it's replicated. Uh, there's now an online test. I'll just finish by mentioning this because you can try it yourself. It's online on my website, sheldrake.org. Go to the online experiments portal. Um, you can register for the online telephone telepathy test. You put in the names of two people you know well and their mobile phone numbers and your own phone number. Um, the computer then picks one of these two people and sends them a text message asking them to ring you. Um, they ring you at the computer. It gives the landline number of the computer. The computer puts them on hold. Then it rings you. Your phone says, mobile telephone telepathy test. You answer it. It says, hello, this is the telepathy test. One of your two callers is on the line right now. Please guess who it is. Press 1 for Anne, press 2 for Bill. Um, so you guess. The line opens up. You get instant feedback as to whether you're right or wrong. Um, and... Um, then you can go on talking for up to a minute, then it cuts off because I'm paying for the call. Um, um, and you do six trials, and that's a test, and then everyone gets a text message telling them, thanks for taking part, the score was. Well, the hit rate here is 50% by chance. It's coming out at about 60% at the moment with thousands of trials. These are highly significant results. When I gave a talk on this at Google in their headquarters, uh, there was a wave of interest there which continues in Silicon Valley to develop apps, intuition training apps, for use on mobile phones. And this kind of research is about to go, you know, spread out into the real world on a big scale. Um, here we have, let me just say in conclusion, examples of phenomena that everybody knows about, the sense of being stared at, psychic pets, 
uh, dogs that, um, uh, uh, telephone telepathy, which have been excluded from orthodox science. Every educated person has been told, these are rubbish. There's whole organized groups of vigilantes who call themselves skeptics, who devote themselves to debunking uh, these kinds of phenomena because they don't fit in to the materialist dogmatic worldview. Science would be so much better off if we open things up, if these are included instead of rejected, if alternative energy devices are given a fair trial, and let me add in medicine, if alternative and complementary therapies are given a fair trial in comparative effectiveness research. I think we can find out what works much better than if we start with a dogmatic assumption that if we think we know the answers already and turn science into a belief system. So I think at the moment there's a tremendous conflict between dogma and the potentials for science to extend our knowledge much more reliably. So I'll just end at that point. Thank you. Thank you.